Today's sermon is brought to you by the letter R. You'll hear a few R's. Uh, not R, ah, but, you know, R's. And there'll be a few others you can go away and work at that, that for some reason revolve around what we're looking at today. Have you ever seen this, these letters before? What do they stand for? Canberra. Where, where might you see CBR? Bus, airport. It's a, it's a standard summary. And we're using CBR to summarise something even more important. Um, we're doing this series, as you know, and if you're a guest here, we're doing something a little unusual. Uh, that is, we're doing a topical series. What does the Bible teach about this? Rather than saying, let's just work our way through a gospel or whatever, a book of the Bible. And so we'll be looking at a number of passages. And um, we're looking at the question, what does it mean to be a human? An awful lot of the discussions that our society is fighting over at times is, what, what is a human being? Chance product of a mindless universe, infinitely malleable, made by someone, owned by someone? How does a human flourish and who knows? I would suggest to you, as I had before, that it's pretty clear that our society doesn't know. Because all sort of pretty objective tests on well-being of humans indicate that we're going backwards quite sadly, but we're still pretty confident. So we've been looking at what does it mean to be human, and we thought we'd have these three introductory ones and then we'd begin to look at specific issues. So it doesn't stand for that. The C stands for created. Uh, it's pretty basic for you to realise that you are a creature. Yeah, someone designed you and made you, and you're pretty flipping wonderful, is what the Bible says. You're wonderfully made, even though we're a bit damaged now. I had a friend, he's retired now, but he was an electrician, and he said that when he was learning the, the skill and the trade, one of the little sayings they had, that when you put all your brainiac work on things and you couldn't work it out, when all else fails, follow the maker's instructions. And that's a, not a bad place to start, rather than just when things go wrong. So we are created. Secondly, we are broken. You're broken, I'm broken, we are broken. That's why all utopian dreams that we come up with don't answer the problem because almost without exception they don't take seriously just how broken I am you are in fact the Bible's word which is translated often as iniquity has got the sense of being twisted there's something twisted about us it's a bit like having a virus in a computer that doesn't wipe everything out completely but it will just cause various things to malfunction at various annoying moments you're like that we can get it right sometimes and dreadfully wrong other times, even though we're confident. We're created, we're broken, and the R stands for we are restored or restorable. That's what we're looking at today. What does the Bible have to say about us being restored? And then we're going to use that as a bit of a grid. So next week we're going to look at what the Bible says about sex. Why are we going to look at what the Bible says about sex? Because one of the first things the Bible says about humans is God made us male and female. It may be an odd thing to say. The only three things it says in Genesis 1, one of these is that your basic sexual difference is significant in understanding the human being. We'll look at that next week. But we'll use the categories of we're created, we're broken, but we're being restored. The next week we'll look at work. Uh, it's another big theme in Genesis 1, 2 and 3, that your work is not just something we do by accident. You are designed as a worker. When a person cannot find work, it's not just sort of economically problematic. It's deeply problematic if humans can't find something that they believe is worth doing. It doesn't have to be paid. But we'll look at what the Bible says about work and rest. 
under those three categories, created, broken, but in the process of restoration. Others, um, the business of how, how are we to, how important is it, uh, this business of relating to others? Uh, we'll find that, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre says that hell is other people. It's a slightly dark view. It's not a view the Bible shares, but it understands it because you're a broken person dealing with broken people. We'll have a look at that and then a number of other issues. So that's where we'll be going. But today we're looking at being restored. Now, some of you will have seen this. In fact, you can do a course in Canberra to learn how to do this. My Japanese is not too good. Uh, I would call it kinstuji. Anyone want to say that more confidently? Kinstuji. I listened to it a few times, you know, through them, trying to get it right, but I'm, no, I'm not very confident. That word. Anyhow, it's made up of two words. The kin part is the word for gold, and the next part, the stuji, doesn't sound right, um, means uh, fixed, repaired. Started by accident, a bloke about 500 years ago, a, a lovely bit of pottery was broken, and he sent it off to get fixed, and he was very unimpressed with it when it came back, and so it was sent back to the potter, and he, uh, he or she, I think it was a he, put gold dust on in some sort of enamel and painted it over the cracks. So it became quite beautiful. So it's often been used as an idea of sometimes when you get broken and well repaired, you are more beautiful than you were beforehand. So I think the course in Canberra that you used to be able to take, um, I don't think you have to wait until a nice bit of pottery gets broken. I think they actually give you a cloth and you break things and you they think it's done quite, because it does look quite beautiful. It doesn't have to be in gold, it can also be done in platinum and colours like that. And so people have often thought that is a bit like human life. Sometimes, not always, sometimes when you get broken and properly repaired and restored, you can even be better than you were before. I'm told it's like that with human bones that break. Not so much soft tissue, but bones that get broken and properly fixed are often harder at the point where they're healed than they were at other points. And what the Bible is on about is the fact that God is the God of restoration. He is the restorer. That word in either the Hebrew or the Greek, the original languages, pops up over 139 times in the Bible. It's, it's, a, it's covered by a whole lot of other words as well. So humans are created, we're broken, but God is in the business of restoring us. To restore something means to return it back to its original function and beauty. You can't be restored until you're damaged. You've got to be damaged before you can be restored. Now, sometimes when a thing gets restored, it actually is made even better. That happens sometimes. But that's what we're talking about here. Now, as I mentioned uh, in passing, that verse at the very, be at the very beginning in Genesis 3, it, it is one of those verses that I never noticed. I used to hear other people talk about it with some measure of excitement. It just never excited me until about two years ago. Well, here we are in the very first couple of chapters of the Bible. And humankind has given God the big rude finger. We've, we've, we've believed lies about him with no grounds at all. He's done, been nothing but generous and kind and benevolent to us, given us a, a garden full of yeses and one tiny no. And yet we, we believe the lie that God is untruth, he's untruthful, he's a liar, and he's not good. That your life will be better if you rewrite the words of God, if you take over the garden. So he's just been, I don't know if you've ever been slandered and lies about you that are not very positive have been believed by other people, but it's not a pleasant experience. 
People get pretty angry when that happens. But here is God in the midst of it, of hearing their excuses and their accusations of each other. And he says this, speaking to the serpent who uh, Revelation 12 tells is is, uh, Satan's envoy. He says to the serpent, I will put hatred or enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So the evil one, the deceiver, the liar, the slanderer about God, is given notice there and then in the presence of the man and the woman that God has a plan to crush his head. But it will be costly to the head crusher. So the evil one knows that there's someone coming who will crush his head. Adam and Eve know that someone is coming who will make all the difference in the world and will cut off the cancer at the very first cell. Now, many scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, have had little idea. They had very clever men. They worked out all sorts of possibilities. But it's one of those passages that when, when Jesus comes, you go, oh, my goodness. How amazing that in the very first couple of pages of the Bible, God is talking about the suffering servant who will save and liberate at pain. Right? And that is, of course, who Jesus, what we've just done the remembrance of, to not forget that he has liberated us, but it has been very costly for him. And he did it willingly. So God lets us know right up front, it ain't staying like this. There will be punishment for sins, as God has said. And there'll be kindness even then as he he prepares sensible clothing for them uh, in the midst of their wickedness. But God lets us know right up front, I'm going to turn this around. It's going to cost, but there will be restoration. And the rest of the Bible tells us about that, of course. Um, Psalm 23, as I mentioned, is one of the most popular psalms in the, um, for both Jews and Christians for very good reason. But it has that beautiful phrase where David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, he restores my soul. Now, the version we have, the translation from the Hebrew, unfortunately, uses the word refresh, which is part of restoration. But every other English translation that I looked at yesterday uses the, the straightforward word restore. He takes us back to a previous period when we were better and weller. Because sheep get torn and frayed at the edges, as do humans. Sometimes we are the cause of our own damage, aren't we? Oh, we can make excuses. And sometimes we've been hurt by others. And then because we're hurt, we make a series of other really dumb decisions that just sort of are meant to ease the pain, but actually make it worse. And we are often torn and frayed. But David has learnt that the Lord will restore our soul. He will, he will take us back to health and wellness. That's what he does. Now, when you come to Jesus, who is David's greater son and who is the answer to the, the promise of the one who will crush the head of the devil, um, you may not have noticed that he does a bunch of stuff which we often call miracles. But let me just um, draw your attention to something I discovered this week simply because I was using the soap readings, which I find very helpful. And if you're... You know, if you don't have a well-disciplined, consistent feeding on the, on the Word of God, you could do worse than uh, take one of the soap leaflets. But I, I was reading Matthew 12 because it was... Down, and I, was, I was pleased to see this. Well, I was pleased to see all sorts of things. Jesus heals a bloke who's got a withered hand. I don't know something... Uh, I've seen people with this, but I don't know what the cause... But he's, the hand has sort of pulled itself in on it, so it's useless, basically. Uh, and they have an argument about healing. In, in Matthew 12, verse 13, Then Jesus said to the man... 
stretch out your hand. So he tells him to do what he, what he obviously can't do. Stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored is the word it uses, the Greek word for restored. I could have used the word healed. It's the same thing, but it's a helpful insight. This is what Jesus is doing. He is restoring us to full glorious liberty as humans. So if you're a cripple, he heals. If you're blind, in fact, in the same word is used in Mark 8 of the man who Jesus heals in two steps. It uses exactly that. He restored his sight. Hearing, all sorts of physical problems, leprosy, he will restore us to health. He can remake us. We may have been the one who screwed our own life up with the help of others, but he is the restorer. And he does it for people. So he calls James and John, and they were, they were keen on calling down God's judgment on people. So Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And by the end of, of the Bible, what is John known as? The apostle of love. Right? He's the great, great, to the point of almost boredom, telling Christians to love one another, love one another, love one another. And yet that wasn't what he was like at first. God is well able to turn people to change people, to liberate us from all sorts of illnesses in our personality or physical. And this is what Jesus wants to do. It shows us what God is like. You want a window into the heart and purposes of God? Jesus, it's me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. What is God on about? He's on about restoring people, right? making us fully, beautifully, gloriously human again. Now, when I became a Christian, I thought it was the opposite. I thought God's plans were to limit me and make life as unfun as possible. And whatever was fun, he said, you can't do it because he was on some sort of weird, nasty power trip. I had no idea that when God took a hold of my life at the age of 19, he wanted to make me fully, healthily, wonderfully human. There's a bit of work to go, as you can see. But that's, that's what he's doing. So when he calls us to follow him, it is so that he may return us to the glory even more. Because actually, surprisingly, the Bible is not so keen about getting us back to Eden, to be, getting us to be like Adam. He wants God's plan is to get you to be like the second Adam. And to, we'll get to that very briefly. But just to see that Jesus is, he is the restorer because he is the Father, the Father's sent Son. He, he is the image of the Father. So it's promised in Genesis 3. David knows something of it in Psalm 23 in that beautiful prayer. Jesus embodies it. And let me just show you an, an example. I got sent, you know, after, after COVID, looks as if every second person in Australia is going overseas. And a friend of mine um, from the city, what I was doing before I came here, he, um, he went a long trip through Europe on camel or something like that, just to make it different. And, uh, but he, he showed pictures of Dresden. Now, all I know about Dresden is that it was terribly bombed in 1945. And there's an argument um, about whether or not that was basically a war crime or whether or not there was some reason. But anyhow, I don't know enough to know the answer to that, but it was terrible what was done. And Dresden was a beautiful city in Saxony, and it was just a wreck. Now, when the, when the communists in East Germany, they didn't bother to rebuild much of it, particularly not the churches. But this is a beautiful church that was in the middle, and all that was left with these two sort of walls, and it was a glorious building. But this guy was sending me pictures of this church and a whole lot of other buildings that just looked like a, an ancient German city. And I said, mate, what is, it, is, is this the Dresden that I've read? He said, yeah, they've rebuilt the whole thing in the last, mostly in the last 30 or so years. 
where they've pulled down some of the shabbier buildings that were replaced. And so this is, this is the building now. They have restored it. That's not a sort of a modern architectural design. That was the old, I don't know if it was medieval, when it was from, but it was old and it's restored. It was wrecked and it was beautifully rebuilt. It is a glorious building. That's what God has in mind with you and me. He wants to restore you. Now, you may be used to being a shabby, broken down old thing. In fact, you may have learned to glory in your shame, is what the Bible says. But God is interested in transforming you, restoring you to be truly, beautifully human. One of the early Christian writers said that the glory of God is seen in a man at full stretch, a human at full stretch. Right? When you're making the best cup of tea you can make, when you're playing the instrument as well as you can, when you're being a really loving parent or a loving grandparent or whatever you're doing, running at full stretch. That's where God is. That's one of the ways that God is glorified. So Jesus is the great restorer and uh, he does a very good job. And, uh, but that, that's the program that we're a part of. Now, we had a reading from Romans 8. It is so tempting to delve into Romans 8 because, you know, Romans 8 is always too good to go past really it's like that pie shop on the you know there's a pie shop on the way back from sydney i came past yesterday you know i don't know if you know it maybe all you scrawny skinny people don't appreciate pies but i just like to support a little industry you know they, they need my money it's very hard to drive past that shop if, you, if you've had one of their pies there i sometimes just after i've had seven or eight of my own i might buy one for my, my daughter who lives in canberra right? and um romans it's a bit like the pie shop only better very hard to go past. Very hard to know where to start and where to stop because the whole thing is one beautiful. But let me just draw your attention to what you heard read in Romans 8. And that was there was a strange thing going on, which you may have noticed, between the creation and the people who received the Holy Spirit. And exactly the same things are said of the creation as are said of those who have been brought to Christ and belong to him. So the, the creation groans, those who receive the Holy Spirit groan. The creation is waiting, those who receive the Holy Spirit are waiting. The creation is hoping, right? hopeful trees, I don't know if thought about that. Right? And we are hoping, because the, the whole of the creation of which humans are central, we're not the only important part, but we are central within this part of the creation, is all broken, and it's all longing for change. Death, plagues, the whole box and dice. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, it's all waiting for the great liberation that will come. And he says in that, he says that human beings, we will have our, our bodies will be redeemed. This is one of a number of passages in the Bible that says this. When God is in the business of restoring humankind, he's also in the business of restoring the whole creation Matter matters to God. Most spiritualities around the world and in human history, they, they downplay the physical for the spiritual. Now, the Bible is very big on the eternal mattering more than the momentary, which is exactly anathema to our culture where you must not think of the eternal, you must only think of the momentary. Um, but it never does it by saying that the physical doesn't matter. Your body is not a prison for your soul. When we see each other in glory, we will have both spirit, mind and soul and body. We will have a body like Jesus had. He's the first fruits. We will be the rest of the harvest. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at that particularly uh, at the beginning of December. We're going to look at the question of the body in God's plans and purposes. But here it's just reminding us that God has plans for the whole creation. God likes what he made. He loves us. I don't think he'd ever use the word love of the creation. But he certainly, he, you know, he's committed to his plan. And the new heaven and the new earth will come and we'll be part of it. So Jesus, the restorer, and he doesn't just restore the spirits. The whole thing will be restored in what is called the new heaven and the new earth. And let me just go to that verse, the new heaven, or one of the verses where it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, many Bible scholars suggest this is probably the highlight verse of the Bible that's all working to this statement. You can discuss that over lunch. Revelation 21. So the great judgment has happened. If you're in the book of life, you're welcome to this next part. If you're not in the book of life, there's another eternal dwelling. Then he says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. We'll explain that later on uh, in a few weeks' time. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. See, what when he's... He doesn't sort of see clouds and harps and all that sort of... And had my uh, niece staying with us for a little while and she's been watching... She's got to the end of what's uh, so far available with uh, The Good Place. Is that what it's called, that series about... I've only watched the first series, but apparently they get to heaven. And, of course, I know it's a clever thing. It all... Our culture cannot do anything about heaven without making it boring. And apparently in that, that's exactly, and I think at that point, I've got no idea who made it, that is a satanic lie. That is exactly the sort of thing the evil one wants people to believe. He doesn't want to make you naughty. Right? He wants, he's a deceiver. So to make the picture of heaven, which people have watched so it's very powerful in a very gripping sort of interesting drama, to make it boring, hell will be boring because uh, all the interesting things God has made will be withdrawn. But we will be taken into a new heaven and a new earth. We will receive a new resurrection body like Jesus. He could eat with his resurrection body. You could touch him. He could do stuff before that body that he couldn't do before he died and rose again. But we will have a new body. We'll be in a new heaven and a new earth, in a new Jerusalem. There'll be no more tears. That beautiful, beautiful statement says, he will, God will wipe away every tear, which, as I think I've shared before, is like a, a father or a mother or even an uncle, if you like, um, with, a, with a child who's crying, and you just wipe the tear. It's just an instinctive thing. Well, it was when, when my kids were crying, which hardly ever happened because I was so well-loved, but, you know, <laughs> dumb. But when they were crying, you just do that, and you just remove the tear, and saying God himself will do that. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. And then here's the climactic verse. The one who was seated on the throne said... Behold, I make all things new. It's a beautiful statement. And as I say, the great part, where he says, I will make all things new. There will be a great restoration. It'll be new, not just that there's another one. It'll be qualitatively new and fresh. As we've said about heaven before, the thing when you get to heaven and glory and the new heaven and the new earth, it will be strangely familiar and yet wonderfully different. Uh, he will restore it. What's God doing along the way? Well, he's doing, he's doing let me show you this. Um, this, I think, is the best picture I've seen of a restoration. 
and we need to go back to, here we go. Now, the James Craig, how many of you have been on the James Craig? Okay, if you go to Sydney and you're bored, not a bad thing to do. It looks better than that now. That was when they found it in 1981. It was in a, in a bay in uh, northern Tasmania. And the reason why we reclaimed it, because there was an American bunch who wanted to get it, so we thought we'd better get it first. And it had been there since 1929 or something like that, just floating around this bay. It was utterly abandoned. You can see the deck, that part there is looking pretty shabby. Uh, it had a holes blown in it by the local fishermen who got sick of the thing sort of floating around and getting in the way of their nets. So it was damaged, very badly damaged, very badly rusted. And uh, they refloated it and they brought it to Sydney and they restored it. Uh, for 26 years they worked on it at a cost of over $30 million. And lots and lots, thousands of hours given by tradesmen for nothing, out of love. And this thing was being restored. I used to drive past it and see the masts going up, etc. Um, and then eventually it was released. And you can see they've done a better job on the deck. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, have woodwork. The lovely woodwork is just such a beautiful thing. And this is what it's like when it's sailing. It's magnificent. I went on it one time as a great act of sacrifice. We brought a guy called William Lane Craig out to Australia to have a few debates with some heavyweight atheists. And we thought, what are you going to show him around Sydney? So we thought William Lane Craig should go on the James Craig. And uh, so we took him out. And it was that fun thing, which some of you will know from sailing boats. We're motoring our way down the harbour. And suddenly they turn the engine off and they put some sails up. And the boat, it almost feels as if it was alive, the way that it picked up. It was just it was very difficult to describe. It sails beautifully. It's been restored. And friends, when God found you, you were like us finding that boat in that side old bay. And his purpose it took a long time and a lot of money to get this sucker back to what it should have been. In fact, it's better now than it was originally. It's got things like fridges in it and other helpful things. I don't know. Much better engine. But that's what God is doing. There's a great big act of recreation coming at the end. The Bible is very clear that God is making us like Jesus, but when we see him, we will be transformed in a massive transformation. But this is what God is doing with us. So you see, this is, this is the three stages. It's broken. It's being repaired. It's fixed. It's restored. Now, I put that up there because that is what God is doing with you if your faith is in him. If your faith is not yet in him, you are just like that wreck, damaged by your own silly choices and sometimes badly damaged by the choices of others. But God loves to restore. God loves to take the broken and to heal, to make the one who's been made ugly and vicious and transform them into the beauty of Jesus. That's what he's on about. And how he does that, we're told... In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says this. We all, he's been talking about Moses, now he says all of us Christians, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image. So you are being transformed not to be like Adam, but to be like Jesus Christ, who's the image of God. You are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Daily, God's plan is to transform you from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's on about. 
That's his purpose in your life. Now, in Romans 8, we're told, that's the whole process. In Romans 8, we're told, all things work together for good. Remember, that's a, that's a much-loved verse for Christians, and rightly so. All things work together for good for those who are called and, uh, according to his purpose. What is the good, though, you see? Here's the, here's the, we always, always got to read, read things in context. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, don't get the knickers in a knot about predestined. Some of you have been arguing that out since you were in first year university or something like that. Let's leave that for the time being so we can get the fuel here, whether you like predestination or not. But what is God's plan and purpose? Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. What is God's plan for your life? To make you like Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, read the Gospels and see what sort of a person he is. See how he loves. See how he serves. See how he trusts God in the hardest of times. See how he transforms others by his love for them. This is what God is doing for us, friends. He is transforming us. He is he has ransomed us. He's regenerated us. He's reconciled us at terrible cost and he's transforming us into the image of Christ. As it says there, we keep our eyes on Jesus, on God's glory and imitation, they say, is the most sincere form of flattery and we will become like him. There's no one more impressive to become like, more beautiful, more satisfying than to become like Jesus. That's what he's doing. And our brothers and sisters, by way of conclusion, I just want to encourage you to embrace God's purpose for you. Right? He wants to make you, he is determined to make you like Jesus Christ. The people who poured the millions of dollars, etc., into, the, um, into that boat, the James Craig, they knew what they were heading to. It may have been uncomfortable for the boat at various times, but it was worth doing. And it's beautiful, the end result. Now, of course, at this point, you're asking me to quote C.S. Lewis. I know you're begging for a C.S. Lewis quote. Let me give it to you. He writes this. Imagine you are a little house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs sort of needed doing, so you're not all that surprised. But soon he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's building on an extra floor up there. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace that he intends to come and live in it himself. What is God doing with us? He's determined to make us like his son. Who is, the only, who is the image of the invisible God. So when we look at ourselves as humans and try to work out what, what, what is God doing, why the suffering? Because this Romans 8 is full of suffering, isn't it? And the book of Revelation is full of suffering. Because like it or not, the Bible consistently says it is often through suffering that we are transformed. That's like the furnace that softens the metal so it can be shaped in the direction that God the Father wants it to go. So always when it comes to thinking about human, remember you're created and the, the maker knows how it works. You're badly broken, which affects the way we think. 
not just our behaviour. So we'll often think about things in a way that is not truthful and not honouring to God. But God is in the business of restoring us. He's doing something beautiful. He is transforming us to be like Jesus. So it is like that pottery, isn't it? Where God makes something even more beautiful. And part of it is because he, we, know, we learn how much it costs him to do it. That's why we have the bread and the wine. It cost him. Now, I've got here this little thing. It's called a piñata, I think. Now, it's damaged. It needs restoration. Right? It's damaged like it was supposed to be. But you may not even realise it had. It, it was a unicorn. But it's lost its horn. It's lost three of its legs. Now, it's entirely possible, if I was cleverer than I am, I could restore this. I couldn't, actually. I'm an idiot with this sort of thing. But if I was going to restore it, I'd make it better. One of the rip-ops we found was that the lollies don't go down into the legs, so, which they should. When we knocked the legs off, we thought lollies had come out. No, no, no. It was, it was armoured like the flippant Bismarck. It was really hard to, to... We had to really hit this thing. But see, one of the reasons why... I'm not going to restore it, even if I could, is because it ain't worth restoring. It's much easier to wander down to the shops and buy another one, a better one with holes from the body to the legs, maybe a deluxe one. But you see, God is saying about you and us, they're worth restoring. I'll give my son so they can be reconciled. I'll give my spirit so they can be reborn and re-energised, and I'll transform them into the image of my son. And our job, friends, as Christians, is to rejoice in that and to work with him. Listen to what the maker says is the way forward, which we'll be doing in the next few weeks, and allow him to restore and to renew us from the inside. And then also to, to be thankful that friends and family who are really wrecked, have either been damaged by life or damaged themselves, he is more than able to reclaim, to float the boat again, and to spend time fixing it up. You will probably know people whose story is almost miraculous. I do one last story that um, I remember when I was in my first year out of theological college as a young minister, I was at Liverpool, and there was a guy in the church who used to speak appallingly to his wife. Didn't swear at her, but just harsh. And I said to the senior minister, mate, we got it. you got to talk to him. you got to talk to him. Right? Uh, and he said... Let's talk about it on Monday at staff meeting. So we did. And he told me this guy's story. He, said, he was from a... And I heard other parts of the story when I moved to Glebe uh, some years afterwards. He was from a, long, from a long line of a criminal family. Brothers, sisters, everyone was in prison. And he was put in prison. He was in Morissette Psychiatric Prison and had been sort of categorised... was about to be categorised as to be never to be released because he was so damaged and so violent and unpleasant. And then there was a bunch of... North Shore matrons in Sydney who used to write, had this ministry writing to prisoners. It was very clear they were never going to see them, they were never going to you know, give them money or anything, they were just going to write to them and talk with them. And this guy Shane, some lady on some North Shore matron writing to, her, writing to him, sends him a Bible, he meets Christ. He goes before the psychiatric board and, the, and whatever that board's called now, and they, they just could not believe the transformation in this man. 
And instead of him being locked away forever, they released him after a further six months. He then married the woman who he had children from and adopted the children, was following Jesus. Was he a bit harsh on his wife? Yeah, I still think he was harsh. And I think Jim spoke to him nonetheless. But what I was seeing was the, you know, the edges that were still pretty obviously frayed. But he was an absolute miracle right? of, the, of the restoration that God was doing against generations of, of awful decisions. And this guy was wonderfully transformed. And that's what God is doing here. And we're praying that he will reach out in restoring miraculous love and take other people and make them like the James Craig. Right? So, created, broken, restorable. Let's pray. And our God, our Father, we stand amazed that even at the point when you were face to face with the slander and the lies about your character by the people that you have made and had so blessed with everything they could possibly need, yet you had a plan uh, to crush the source of the evil and to release at great cost to yourself and your son. Father, thank you for taking hold of our lives and floating us like the old James Craig and your long-term work to make us a little bit more like Jesus every day. Thank you, Lord, that when we do things that harm us, and often harm others, you remain merciful and quick to forgive. Help us this week, Father, to become a little bit more like Jesus in the way that we think, the way that we use our time, the way that we treat people who annoy us, the way that we, the way that we do all things, that each one of us would become a little bit more like Jesus, that you would tra uh, transform us and restore us into the image of Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done and the cost to you in Jesus' name. Amen.